When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. He, he really has a deep animosity to the press. So keep reminding yourself, this is not normal. And we've normalized it already. Less than a week after the election is over, suddenly Washington is going about its business, talking about who's going to get what jobs. And you would think that Mitt Romney had won. It's a hallucination. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who says there was nothing funny on Saturday Night Live, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Come on, not even that sketch about the bubble? It's like Brooklyn, but with a plastic dome over it? That was one of the best things I've seen on SNL in years. So something else happened on Saturday, too. The National Policy Institute just had its conference a few blocks from the White House in Washington. That's the innocuous-sounding name for the alt-right group led by Richard Spencer. There were a lot of stories about the conference that said the participants weren't skinheads or swastika-wearing neo-Nazis. The new white nationalists wear suits and have Steve Bannon on their speed dial. They want to influence the new administration the way organizations like the Heritage Foundation usually do. Meanwhile, the conference ended with people giving the Hitler salute and shouting, Heil victory! Are these semi-demi-neo-Nazis wrong to compare what's happening in America to Germany in the 1930s? And is it wrong for critics of Donald Trump to mention Trump and Hitler in the same breath? And if we do pursue that comparison between Trump and Hitler, what does it really tell us? I'll be back to discuss those questions with Timothy Snyder, one of the foremost historians of Nazism and the Holocaust, right after we do the tweets. I settled the Trump University lawsuit for a small fraction of the potential award because as president, I have to focus on our country. The only thing bad about winning the presidency is that I did not have the time to go through a long but winning trial on Trump University. Too bad. I watched parts of NBC's Saturday Night Live last night. It is a totally one-sided, biased show. Nothing funny at all. Equal time for us. Our wonderful future VP, Mike Pence, was harassed last night at the theater by the cast of Hamilton. Cameras blazing. This should not happen. The theater must always be a safe and special place. The cast of Hamilton was very rude to a very good man, Mike Pence. Apologize. The cast and producers of Hamilton, which I hear is highly overrated, should immediately 
apologize to Mike Pence for their terrible behavior. My guest today is Timothy Snyder. He's a professor of history at Yale, specializing in Eastern and Central European history, and the author of several books, including Bloodlands and Black Earth, The Holocaust as History and Warning. Tim, welcome to the show. Glad to talk to you. So your piece in Slate begins, his election that November came as a surprise. And what you do in that piece is you narrate aspects of Hitler's rise to power in Germany without using any proper nouns. And it turns out that a lot of that description comes pretty close to applying to the phenomenon of Donald Trump. There's, you know, once I submitted that piece to you, I realized there was more. I mean, two sentences in the, fir- in the first paragraph could have read, his popularity seemed to have peaked. Another one could have read, it appeared that the nation was on its way out of economic crisis. There are an awful lot of echoes. But what I was after there was, was trying to find a middle way between historical analogy and dismissing history altogether. Because, of course, on the one hand, it's right that history doesn't repeat itself. Um, but on the other hand, we're often too quick to use that cliche or to say, you know, that's just an analogy and then find a flaw with it. We're often too quick to do those things and or not to think about history at all. History shows a range of possibility. If a thing can happen, that means it must have been able to happen. History broadens our imagination, I think, about what's possible. It also helps us to see patterns and processes. We're having a, we're having a hard time with processes these days. We, we, move, we move from flash to flash, event to event. We're, we're shocked all the time, but we have a little trouble putting all the pieces together. So what I was after in that essay was, was trying to recall that this event that we think we understand, Hitler, Nazi Germany, the Holocaust, and so on, was also a process with some accidents, with some contingencies, with some places where things might have gone in a different direction, but above all, a, a, a process where people could have and failed to say no at certain points. You know, a lot of people do have the reaction. I mean, you do something that is quite incendiary here. You do it in a very measured way. But a lot of people say you just shouldn't make comparisons to Hitler for a lot of reasons, either because it has the effect of, of diminishing the, the uniqueness of Hitler's crimes or because, you know, when the sort of people refer to Godwin's law, it just sort of ends the conversation. Once there's a comparison to Hitler, it's sort of hard to say much of anything else except people end up yelling at each other. It's not, you think, the thing is, you know, I mean, it's not a comparison, I guess, is the point. So a comparison is when we say Hitler was X and Trump is Y and, you know, Y is a little bit like X. A comparison takes two static things and says they're like each other or they're not like each other. It looks at the differences or the similarities. A comparison is usually anti-historical, right? So, I mean, as a historian, I usually get annoyed by comparisons, too. But what what I'm after here is is to try to get us out of that impulse of, of of either quickly accepting or quickly rejecting a comparison or comparisons as such, and helping us to think our way into alternative perspectives, which I think is helpful because we don't really know what our perspective is right now. We don't know um, who the person we've elected is. We don't know what what is being planned, right? We we have we have we we have guesses about how our institutions will will react, but we don't really have any idea because our institutions have never been tested the way they're going to be 
tested now. So I, 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 I think it's, it's a mistake to, to toss out the baby with the bathwater and, you know, in the interest of, of purity of concepts, um, stop thinking about, about history in, entirely. I guess the second thing I would say about comparing and, and Hitler even though this is not what I'm after, I mean, in this, in this piece, I try very hard, you know, to do something different. It's really important to remember that Hitler happened in history and that when Hitler was happening in history, people were trying to figure him out at the time and they were making all kinds of comparisons as a way to do so, right? Was Hitler like Mussolini? Was Hitler like Stalin? You know, was, was Hitler another big spender? Was Hitler another nationalist? Was Hitler this? Was Hitler that? Everyone who was trying to understand Hitler was making, you know, was making comparisons themselves, and people have been doing it ever, ever, ever since. There's nothing holy about or unholy about doing it. What I would say is that you know, we have an advantage over those people in the 1930s, and our advantage is that we have the processes of the 20th century behind us. We can look at them. We don't have to be surprised by the fact that modern institutions or educated people can throw up authoritarianism or tyrants. There's no reason for us to be surprised by that because it's happened over and over again. So I think it'd be a mistake to just toss away that advantage. Um, you know, reading this, I realized how little I actually know about about the rise of Hitler and, and those years. I just wanted to ask you a little more about that. I mean, you write one of the lines in your piece, you say, various right-wing elites preserved their calm. Although they had failed to keep him from power, they were sure that they could control him. Does that describe the attitude of President Hindenburg and, and other people on the non-Nazi German right when, when Hitler was uh, in, in 1932, before and after the election? I'm, I'm really glad you, you asked that question because it, in a way it casts light on, on, on the previous one. So let me just say a word about that before, before I answer it. We often forget the steps that had to be taken for Hitler come to, to Hitler further come to power. What we often do is we freeze frame the Second World War or we freeze frame Auschwitz or, or Treblinka or the Holocaust as a whole, and we say, well, that hasn't happened, therefore not to worry, which, which tends to make me and I think some, some other historians at least a little bit crazy, because in order to get to you know, in order to get to the Second World War, in order to get to, to, to the Holocaust, a whole series of things had to happen. And it's those things that ought to be, we ought to be thinking about, not because they're exactly the same, but because they might offer us some purchase on our own reactions, on how we might be behaving. So yes, it, it's exactly right that Hitler was a kind of, people thought of him at the time as a kind of rabble-rousing politician. People thought of him as having certain gifts, but as of having limited gifts. The people who were older than he was, or the people who were more experienced in politics, the people who had traditional political parties, believed that they under, could, could understand him within their own terms, and they were wrong. And the people who formed up, who were responsible for forming up the government that he would be the head of, believed that they would be able to manipulate him, get him in and out of power as they wished, you know, ride on the appeal of his movement as long as they wanted to, and then stop. And, and they proved to be mistaken. So, yeah, I mean, Hitler had just lost to Hindenburg in presidential elections. Von Papen, you know, would be, would be the crucial character. People from the German far right who were instrumental in seeing Hitler come to power, but then found themselves faced with something they didn't understand. And then to jump ahead, because I don't know what your next question is going to be, the, the crucial thing is that not long after Hitler came to power, there was a crisis, which was the Reichstag fire, um, the act of terrorism in, in the peace. And so then you get two surprises in a row. 
one surprise being a kind of unknown person who's given the reins to power, and then the other surprise being, a, being what seems like an external shock, which seems to break all the rules and justify novelty. That, you know, we, we know not just from the example of Hitler, but from all kinds of other examples, that's a very powerful combination. And I'm, I'm in, in, you, in talking about Germany in the 1930s, I'm just trying, I'm trying to stress that that tends to act on people in similar ways over time. Yeah. Um, it's You mentioned the Reichstag fire. You refer to that as sort of the terrorist attack in the piece. There's still historical debate, right, about whether that was deliberate um, sabotage by whether Hitler set it up or whether it was an ac- actual sabotage. I guess people now think Hitler didn't set it up, but he used it. Is that what is that what the historical consensus is now? So let me answer that in three ways. I'm going to say what the historical consensus is, and, and then I'm going to say why it doesn't really matter so much who's right, and then I'm going to say a word about the present. The historical consensus is indeed that, that the Reichstag fire was started by a lone Dutch anarchist, as Hitler and the Germans at the time said that it was. I mean, as everyone probably will know, what happens in the Reichstag fire is that this then becomes the occasion for Hitler to declare a state of emergency, which is then enforced for the entire remainder of his life and, and of his power. It's enforced until until 1945. That um, means the de facto end of parliament, the de facto end of, of political party life as the leaders of other parties are put in camps and so on. So it's a really decisive moment. But historians think, as you say, that it probably was just an accident. I mean, I just say a contingency that he reacted to it. However, there, there are there are there is some revisionist work which suggests quite the opposite that it had been planned um, and that and that the, the Nazis reacted so swiftly because they knew it was coming. But my second point is that it doesn't really matter so much. I mean, it, it would change if, if we were if we we're all convinced that 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 Hitler had in fact planned the Reichstag fire. That wouldn't add so much to his catalog of evil, really. You know, given what we know, what, what's crucial is the way that leaders and people react to something like that. And Hitler was able to use um, the event, however it arrived, as a justification for a fundamental and really rapid transformation of of the system. And it, it's it's that point that one has to watch out for, which brings me up to the present. I mean, given the circumstances in which, just given the raw circumstances in which we live, it's quite possible that there will be some kind of major terrorist attack, God forbid, on American soil in, in the next four years. And just how that happens, you know, we're probably not going to know at the time. Time. Will it be that, that ISIS sees precisely American polarization at the moment as a good reason to try to attack? Will it be that ISIS or someone else finds General Flynn provocative and therefore tries to go after the United States? Will it be that, you know, in a slightly nastier and more dubious combination, other people um, who are not Islamic terrorists at all set up something to look like it's Islamic terrorists? Whatever it is, we're not going to know on the day that it happens. And, and whatever it is, you know, the threat, the threat to the system is going to be the same. The possibility that that the government decides that this means we have to have some kind of permanent emergency. You you write another line from your piece. Global conspiracies were supposedly directed at his country and its uniquely righteous people. You know, one of the things that just seemed absolutely chilling to me was in the closing days of the campaign when Trump started to give these speeches that actually talked about international finance in conspiratorial terms and then ran ads before the election that just had this litany of Jewish names. I mean, you don't know what else to say about it except that they were the classic tropes of of anti-Semitism and not just of any anti-Semitism, of of Hitler's anti-Semitism. In a way, it comes back to your original question about comparison. I mean, when people point swastikas on walls, 
right? They're making a comparison, and, and all the goodwill in the world by, you know, by, by thoughtful people like you and me can't make that comparison disappear, right? Like in some sense, it's being made for us. If people, right, you know, make America white again and, you know, have swastikas or if, if, if people, you know, as, as they just did death after this rally in Washington, shout hail to victory, which, of course, is American English for Zig Heil. When people do that, the comparison is already being made, you know, and no amount of historical political correctness is going to make that comparison wash away. You know, the, the, you, we can't we can't stop it just by by by, by pussyfooting around our, our, ourselves. Now, yeah, I, I mean, at the specific level, I agree. I mean, there there are quite there are quite specific tropes, national socialist tropes, like the idea that one's enemies are in league with the hidden hands of history, which are usually presented as Jewish. That that turns up the idea that Hillary Clinton, you know, makes history by, by meeting offshore with, you know, unnamed leaders of finance. That for anyone who spends a lot of time working on national socialism or fascism, that sounds awfully familiar. And of course, you know, the the idea that politics is essentially about the protection of, of one people against international forces, and that there aren't really rules about this, that it's just a matter of, you know, just a matter of the righteousness of, 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 of the homeland and its people. That, that's also, that also has a very strong whiff of the 1930s. But I would say, you know, I'd make a point which is even stronger, maybe even where you know, it's not exactly. I mean, it's striking, as you say, that sometimes one is confronted with ideas that just are exactly like ideas of the 1930s. But even when they're not exactly like the 1930s, it's worth noting the general pattern. There's a there's an important break between people who think that politics is about rules and that there are rules here and there are rules abroad and that one might improve them or reform them and so on. But there are basically rules, and those rules will lead us along towards prosperity and freedom. And people who say, no, in fact, it's all a struggle. The rules are there to be broken. Life is constantly a state of exception. You know, I'm an exceptional person. I come from nowhere. I'm going to lead you to the truth. I'm, I'm your voice. We're going to break the rules at home and abroad. That's going to, and that's going to bring something better, right? There's a pretty fundamental break in the two styles of politics. And, you know, we find ourselves sliding pretty, pretty quickly towards the second. Yeah, I think you were referring a minute ago to this gathering that happened in Washington over the weekend of, of this alt-right gathering. I think the group is technically called the National Policy Institute. They have an innocuous name. But this guy, I mean, first of all, they were saying Heil victory and giving the Nazi salute. And this is three blocks from the White House in, in a federal office building, which they've rented. But uh, the, the part that made me think of you was that Richard Spencer, who's the leader of this organization, gave this after-dinner speech. And he said, and this is according to the report in the New York Times, he's ranting about the mainstream media. And he said, perhaps we should refer to them in the original German. And the audience screamed back in, in unison, Lugenpresse. I don't know. Is that how you pronounce it? Lying press. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot, of, a lot is going on sort of in and around journalism, which is symptomatic of, of, of the big problem we're facing. So let me, let me just take this a little bit more broadly. In, in fascism, there isn't really truth. There isn't really enlightenment. There, isn't, there aren't really facts and evidence. In, in, in fascism, you, know, you start from will and emotion and fantasy and myth. You know, your idea of greatness is primarily an aesthetic idea. It's not built up on structural foundations that you've, you know, investigated and, 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 and verified. It's primarily a kind of vision of greatness, which then you will try, then you will cast yourselves after it, you know, by way of armies or by way of rhetoric or, or something or other. So fascism, you know, the first time around was inherently hostile to, to the press, 
not just because the press represented different. I mean, what, the, what fascism said about the press was that it lied, you know, as in that as in that cliche, or that the press was all owned by Jews, right? That's what that's what they said. But there was something deeper going on, which is that fascism can't really tolerate a culture where people are trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> I mean, fascism can't really handle individuals who are trying to figure things out for themselves on the basis of facts or with the help of other people who are who are trying to understand the world on on the basis of facts. And so what you have, you know, now which is which is distressing is this kind of encirclement of um of journalism on many sides, you know, not just on the extreme right, by people who refer to it as the mainstream media, therefore categorizing it as just sort of one more slice of truth or one more slice of, you know, fiction, perhaps, uh, among others, right? And therefore there's, and, and, and where this leads, you know, is, is, is to this, is this conclusion that there's not really any truth. And, and of course, you know, one can, one can talk until the cows come home about what truth is, but there's a fundamental difference between punting on truth completely, which is part of the fascist position, and thinking, you know, it's difficult to get absolute truth or perfect truth or uncontroversial truth or objective truth, but what we should be trying to do is figure things out. Those are two very different positions. So, you know, when, when, when Nazis today, or in 1933, Call the press the Lügenpresse. These are the ultimate stakes. You know, is there truth or is there not truth? Because if there's not truth, you know, that opens the way towards the notion that everything is really a struggle. We can say what we want. Our words are just one more weapon. You know, in this struggle for victory, they don't they don't attempt to describe the world. They're, just, they're only about changing the world so that the world becomes more like this racial struggle that we think it really ought to be. But you but you permit to yourself the 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 right to make things up. I mean, there's no standard of truth that applies to you as. You you say as as to, to the Nazis, but at the same time, lying is a term that has meaning and is an accusation against the other side. This, yeah, this this is absolutely right. But I mean, like the thing about I mean, one of the reasons why the German language is so potent is the way you can put two words together, right? So, I mean, the 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 the, 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 the example which is so unforgettable to us is endlosung, you know, final solution as as one as one word. But the solution is final, and the finality is a solution. And Lugenplatz is like that. What Lugenplatz does is it says. It puts the word to lie and the word press in one word, and therefore the press itself becomes a lie, right? So you can, you can, that's exactly right. You can condemn others as being liars, even though, you know, what, what you're doing is not held to any standard whatsoever. It's criticism that only goes out in one direction. But again, I mean, I'm afraid, I mean, in, in an extreme form, it's easy to condemn. But, you know, but, but I worry, of course, that this is a bit symptomatic of larger parts of the culture as well. There's an awful lot of, you know, accusation of other people of, 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 being, of being liars without or, you know, without the person making the accusations, holding themselves to any, any kind of a standard. I'm, that probably sounds very conventional fashion, but it's something that I worry about. One place where I, I think the, these neo-Nazis are probably destined to be disappointed, though, is around Trump's ideology. Trump really has no ideology. I mean, he could as easily have argued the opposite of almost any position he took in the campaign. And, you know, there's no – I mean, Hitler wrote Mein Kampf. I mean, Hitler had a, a well-developed view of the entire world, and the conspiracy he was talking about was very specific, as crazy as it was. And there's just nothing comparable here, right? Yeah, I mean, when, when the, I, was, I was giving an interview to, to a European journalist a few months ago, and I was trying to explain that Mein Kampf was not the same thing as the art of the deal. And then, of course, like, <laughs> but then it sort of circles within circles because one then one remembers that Trump did not, in fact, write art of the deal. Right? So there's no like, there's not actually anything to base. There's not much to base any assessment of his ideology on. So I, I, I guess yes and no. I mean, certainly, 
Trump is not a man, you know, like Hitler, who has been animated his entire adult life by a certain idea. I mean, Hitler came to a certain set of conclusions around 1919, 1920, you know, wrote, went to prison after an attempt to take power, which is something that's unimaginable that Donald Trump would do, or for that matter, anybody around him. In prison, you know, he wrote, he wrote a very long book, again, something that's very hard to imagine Donald Trump doing or anyone around him. Out of prison, he went back into politics and worked really hard for a long time. I mean, Trump worked for, you know, he worked for, for a year, but basically, like, by having cameras on him, worked really hard for a long time, built up his own political party, you know, thought very carefully about how, how, how to win power, how to, how to modulate his own views so the public would accept them, and then took advantage of a Great Depression. That is, it's, it's true. That's a, you know, that story of consistency and ideology is very different from the story of, of Donald Trump. But I don't think, and, and so when one writes the history of, of Hitler and National Socialism, it's really, it's a history of someone who had clear views and whose clear views people chose not to see for various reasons or believe that they were not essential. So the consolation with Trump, I think, is only partial, because what we're trying to think now is that all the stuff he said on the campaign trail, he doesn't really believe. And no doubt he doesn't. I mean, you know, I, I would be I would be very I'd be very surprised to find out that Donald Trump was actually, for example, um, a dyed in the wool anti-Semite. That would be a, I'd be very weird um, in, in given the kind of life that he's he's led. It'd be very weird to find out that Donald Trump was actually a dyed in the wool actual anti-liberal, given that he's basically led an extraordinarily bohemian life, which contradicts pretty much everything that you know his his voters think that he stands for. Um, Bohemian's a little strong, but I'll go, I'll go libertine. Okay, libertine. Let's go libertine. Yeah, libertine. Le- Bohemian. Bohemian gives him too much credit. It gives, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's too nice, um, but it does, I mean, it does capture something, you know, like Hitler also, Hitler, you know, Hitler liked to stay up late and sleep late. And Carl Schmitt, who is the, the smartest of the Nazis, was somebody who very, was very much a Bohemian. But anyway, I mean, it, so there, there are differences, but I'm not sure there's room for total consolation here, because what you say on the campaign trail doesn't just go away, especially when it works. And I think I would grant that Trump was using the things that he thought would work. It's unfortunate that they worked, and now it's not clear how he gets out of them. It's not also, I mean, when one looks at his first round of appointments, he's not, you know, taking a step back towards conservative Republicans. He's taking a step towards the slightly unusual in general in, in his appointments. And one also worries, you know, what, what happens with the absentee president? You know, if Trump really has had enough and he's kind of tired and wants to spend long weekends in, in New York and someone else is running the government, who exactly is that going to be? You know, is that going to be Pence? In which case we get something predictable, although I think extremely, extremely, extremely harsh. Or is, is that going to be Steve Bannon, someone who doesn't really believe in government, who thinks that government should be should, should basically be you know should be should be crushed with its own power? There's a lot we don't know. I agree with you though that we're not, what we're not going to see is a clear ideology you know that that then actually formulates itself as a result of of long and patient work. That were, the long and patient work. I mean, this is kind of the, one of the ironies when we compare us to the 1930s. We think. We all think we're better than 1930s, and I kind of shrug my shoulders. I mean, maybe in some ways we are, but one way that we're definitely not better than 1930s is that people back then had much longer attention spans than we do. So it's hard to imagine, you know, it's hard to imagine Trump actually carrying out any kind of a program over a long period of time. But I'm afraid what I can imagine is a lot of confusion and then some radicalizing event early on in the first term 
that I don't have much trouble imagining. Tim, the other way we're consoling ourselves, at least I'm consoling myself, is thinking, look, our, our independent institutions are stronger. I mean, our independent judiciary is, is, has a longer, stronger tradition of independence. Our institutions of civil society and organizations are just a stronger countervailing force against government and also federal government. I mean, government at state and local levels is a powerful countervailing force. I mean, I'm, let me just historicize that claim. I think you might be right. I'm not, I'm not a student of American you know, institutions or history. I think you might well be right. I would just point out that that's what people always say. That's what people in Germany thought. They, they had different kinds of institutions and they had different kinds of commitments. But very few, very few people in Germany would have said, our strong, independent, world-class bureaucracy you know, the, the, the strongest and most rule-bound bureaucracy ever invented in the history of the world. Very few Germans in 1928 you know, or whatever would have said, in 15 years, this bureaucracy is going to be processing documents about mass murder and not batting an eye, right? That would have been surprising. So when the Germans would have said our institutions are going to stop this, they would have been thinking of different institutions. You know, it's not, they, many, most Germans were not really particularly democratic at that time, but they had their own way of consoling themselves or of thinking this can't, this can't go too far. And when you look at the history, and this is one of the reasons why in the piece I try to insist on all this as a process, when you look at the history of Hitler's rise and you stretch it out over a long period, you know, from 32 to, 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 to 39 or even from 24 to 39, what you see is institution after institution failing to stop him. You know, he's, he's not stopped by criticism of him in the press. He's not stopped by political party competition. He's not stopped by right-wing elites. He's not then stopped by the rule of law, which he suspends. And let's face it, the rule of law is a very strong tradition in Germany, right? I mean, not democracy as such and not liberalism, but the rule of law for sure. And he manages to suspend the rule of law and, and, and to somehow work within it, beside it, um, to, get, to get on top of it. So, I, I think you're. I think you may well be right. You know that our that our institutions are, are are stronger, better. They're certainly different. But what I what I what I really would want people to, I guess, see, you know, as a historian, is that nothing acts on its own. Our institutions might be strong, but they're not robots that are going to defend us automatically. They're only going to be strong insofar as the people within them are strong, and especially insofar as the people who are outside of them take them seriously and and try to defend them. Again, I, I wouldn't want to say that we're just like – I certainly wouldn't want to say that we're just like Poland or Hungary um, or, you know, or, or, or other contemporary societies, just to shift the comparison a little bit. But what one sees in the, in the slow progress of authoritarianism in other democracies in other parts of the world is that what happens is the institutions get picked off one by one. It's not that they all collapse. It's that they get picked off one by one. And when one looks at the U.S. today, yes, I mean, the landscape is strong. I agree. I think the federal structure of the state is a big deal. I think that the, the cities and their mayors are, are a big deal. I think that the, the way that our, the, the apparatus of force is divided up is, 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 very, is very important. I think civil society is very strong. Um, I get all of that. But this isn't maybe the best moment in history of our institutions with, you know, the, the Supreme Court only having eight members with, the, you know, with, with 31 or whatever it is of 50 state houses being held by, by one party, um, with all the major levers of power in the federal government being held by one, one party. I mean, regardless of what that party is, that's not always such a, that's not always such a good, good news for institutions because you can, you can get to a point where there's so much party hegemony that the institutions themselves start, start to bend. So, I mean, much as I would like to believe in American exceptionalism, um, and, and much as I sort of do, I don't think that the, the, the exceptionalism isn't going to win out on its own. It's only going to win out if Americans behave in a historically exceptional way. 
if, if Americans behave now exactly the way that other people have behaved in the past, we, we may have some big problems. So I, I guess what I would say is we shouldn't rely even as I agree with you about you know, the, the, the vibrancy and, and pluralism of our institutions, we can't rely on our own self-image as being exceptional. I think that itself would be a step forward to a future that we really don't want. I've been speaking to the historian Timothy Snyder. His most recent book is Black Earth, The Holocaust is History and Warning. Tim, thanks for joining me. It was my pleasure. Thanks for talking. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. And John Domenico is back as our voice of Donald Trump. I want to thank Virginia Heffernan for sitting in for me on Friday. You should listen to the great interview she did with Jonathan Shade of New York Magazine if you haven't already. And since we're back indefinitely, please make sure you leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps people discover the show. And if you like this program, you can help to support it by becoming a member of Slate Plus. Over 2,000 people have signed up in the past 10 days, and we want to push that number a lot higher. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. I am going to make sure Saturday Night Live gets canceled. Horrible show. Not funny. It's never been funny. Only time it was funny when I was on last year. That was funny. I'm I'm incredible, I have to tell you. And the show Hamilton, horrible, horrible show. Horrible show. I hear it's inaccurate. Very inaccurate, which is bad. That's bad. And there's a lot of Puerto Ricans playing Americans, which I think is terrible. Terrible. You have to have Americans playing Americans, if you know what I'm saying. Not Puerto Ricans. Not Puerto Ricans playing Americans.